Good morning, everyone. I have the honour of bringing you the Bible reading today. We're reading from Acts chapter 26, Paul on trial. A few moments for people who are looking it up. Perfect. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So Paul motioned with his hands and began his defence. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the strictest sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went to, from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priest. About noon, King Agrippa, I was on the road. I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me for the, to this very day. 
So I stand here and testify to small and to great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own peoples and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defence. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe that prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Benice, and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything, deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free he has not if, if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, good morning, everyone, and it's great to be here. Can I encourage you, just grab your Bibles, have them open in front of you there in Acts chapter 26 as we continue our series in the book of Acts, the Unstoppable series. And it's really quite incredible. I can't believe it. we've only got two weeks to go. This is our second last. Next week's our final one. Uh, it's been really great to work our way through the, the book of Acts and to just see how Jesus is ruling and reigning, he's empowered his people by the Holy Spirit, and the gospel is actually unstoppable. So let's pray as we come to Acts chapter 26 today. We come to a passage where really Acts chapter 26 comes in the context of Acts 24, 25, and 26, where, where Paul finds himself before three very important leaders, and what we find out is that actually yeah, they can't even stop the spread of the gospel. So let's pray. And um, as we come to God's word this morning, Heavenly Father, we ask that you'll give us the ears to hear, the eyes to see, and just, yeah, just give us a, a greater glimpse of who you are and that um, the world that we live in, so that as disciples of Jesus, we will live out our lives with a passion to see people's lives transformed by Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've, I've stepped up my cooking um, in recent months. I've stepped up to being able to cook beef brisket. And so of recent, you know, last couple of weeks, I've been, I've been buying beef brisket. And so on Friday, it's my day off. I thought, I'm going to have a crack at cooking beef brisket again. So me and Al, it's a day off. We head to Aldi's because it sells cheap beef brisket. We rocked up. I bought the brisket. We bought some other food. The black shopping basket was full. Al had a couple of things under her arms. And as we headed to the checkout, you know, you got the checkout at Aldi's and, and it's got the belt. And I noticed out of the corner of my eye something pretty incredible. Audi's now has self-serve. And I was like, no, no, let's just go through the checkout. And I'm like, no, you can't do that because, you know, the, the Audi's operator does this and you're there trying to shove everything in the, and it's just too fast for me. And it's just, they're too impatient. They just want to get done fast. So I said, let's go self-checkout. So we go to the self-checkout and you go, your beep, and you put it down the weights and you keep going through. I get the beef brisket and you go, beep, it's there. And you put it down and it goes, bam, bam, 
bam, it's like, oh man, you know how the, it just says, make sure you place your item in the, the area. It was placed and it said you need to get customer service. And so we're there and I lift, you know, you know what you do with those machines at Woolies? I don't know whether you do it or do it at ours as well. You pick it up and you just throw it down so the scales see that you've given it the food so it goes on. But it wouldn't let me do that. I'm like, oh man. And so we looked around and it felt like five minutes before anyone would come and service. And, and we saw there was a lady there on another counter and she was meant to be looking after the self-service and her body language, her body posture told me she wasn't too impressed. And it was like, we're looking at ours, looking at, is anyone going to come and serve us? We should have just gone through checkout. And eventually she came over, didn't speak to us, didn't look us in the eyes, looked at what the problem was, pressed the button with a special key, and it's all reset. I thought, you ripper, we're right. She walks off and does it, goes back to the checkout. And we're going through, beep, 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 bop, bop. It's like, oh man, another, it felt like 15 minutes. We're standing there. And we could really tell by her body language and her posture she didn't want to, she was pretty annoyed. And we're looking at her going, hey, we're going to get service here. And she came over, didn't talk, didn't give us eye contact, pressed the button with a special key, and we finally got out of Aldi's. That was one experience on Friday. Her body language was just like, I'm not, I'm not here to help you. Now, we went to a cafe after that meeting. I thought I'd take my lovely wife out, have a cup of coffee. So we went and got some coffees. And we turned to this cafe in Arnold Park. And like straight away, the bloke behind the counter, his body language is like, I'm glad you're here. He said, what would you like? I said, two coffees, thanks, cappuccino. Would you like anything to eat? And then when I go out, you'll know that I'll ask them what's the best on the menu. I'm not going to, you know. He said, the chicken burger's good. I said, let's get that. And I was like, I want something sweet. And I said, yeah, that'd be good. And there was just this array of cakes you know, caramel slice, cherry ripe, you know, almond croissant. And the bloke's body language, oh, they're all beautiful. Like he wanted us to be there. But I can tell you when it comes to slices, it could be 10 minutes before we actually decide which one we're going to pick. But this guy didn't worry. He just kept smiling and said, this is really good. This is really good. Why don't you try this? And we're there 15 minutes late. Well, it wasn't 15 minutes. It felt like 15 minutes late. And finally, we didn't know what to do. And yet the whole time his body language said to me, I'm glad you're here. Take your time. Pick whatever you want. We want you to, you know, and we picked the, the, the almond croissant. It was beautiful. And, and for the rest of that experience, his body language, his posture towards us was, how was your food? What was it like? Two very separate body language moments in our life on Friday. One sabotaged the experience and one strengthened it. Now, good leadership will tell you that emotional intelligence is pretty key to leading, that, that body language and your posture, not how you stand, but how you present affects what you're about to say. It's going to affect whether you sabotage what your message is or it'll affect by strengthening your message. On Friday, I had both, where their body language, their posture said, hey, either stay and listen or don't have anything to do with it. You know, either stay and listen, enjoy the cafe or don't have anything to do with what I want. We had an experience like that. Now, when you come to Acts chapter 26, I think in a sense, as you read 24, 25, and 26, we actually get a picture of Paul's posture and his body language as he's on trial. We see the way he acts and the way he behaves. We see something about how he postures his self as you face trial. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at the question, what kind of posture does Paul show in the midst of trials? But before we do that, it's probably worth going, hang on, a, lot's gone under, a lot of water's gone under the bridge since last week in Acts chapter 16. 
And so let's have a bit of a quick look at what this passage is really about and the context of what's happened first. Last week we were in, we were in um, the city of Philippi. Um, people were saved. I um, mean, 17, 18, and 19, Paul goes to Ephesus. He goes to Corinth. He goes to Ephesus. The gospel's preached. People are saved. Churches are planted. By Acts chapter 21, he finds himself back in his home like he finds himself back in Jerusalem. Now, the brothers and sisters, those that were disciples of Jesus, they welcome him, they love him. Now, but then some Jews, they're like in chapter 20, they're pretty ticked off with Paul. And so they stir up some problems against Paul. They're saying Paul's unclean, he's causing a row. Acts chapter 21, the commander, they, they stir up the crowd so much that the commander says, we're going to have to go do something with him. Paul says to the commander, hey, can I just talk to these people? He talks to the crowd. And he talks to the crowd, and in, in, in chapter 22, he talks to the crowd and he says, you know, he talks about Jesus and being sent by Jesus. And then he says in chapter 22, verse 21, Jesus has said to me, go and I'm going to send you far away to the Gentiles. And at that point, the crowd goes wild. Rid the earth of Paul. He's not fit to live. And so the commander's like, okay, the commander doesn't know what to do. And so what he does, is he takes Paul, he gets him stretched out he's, so he's getting stretched out to be flogged and it's going you know boom, boom, but he's ready to get flogged and Paul pulls out the ace of spades or the joke you know when you're playing cards and there's one card that just trumps everything and Paul comes out and he says is it legal for you to have a Roman citizen flogged without a like without a trial who hasn't been found guilty right and they hit the emergency stop button like boom oh they go to the commander, this, this guy's a Roman citizen and he hasn't been found guilty. We've got to stop. So the commander stops him. And so we had this point, they don't know what to do. They go, okay, put Paul inside for a while. But then rumor has it that the Jews are going to come and, you know, take him. And so the commander, he gets 200 fighting men, 70 horsemen, 200 spearsmen. Like, so he's nearly got 500 troops to escort Paul to Caesarea for safety. And he gets there. And this is where we get to in, Genesis, I mean, Acts chapter 24. We get there and he, he comes before this guy called Felix. Felix sort of listens to him and like, he doesn't want to make a, a judgment. He doesn't want to say whether he's innocent or he just can't work out what to do with him. So he thought, oh, I'll get the advice of someone else. But Felix and his adulteress, Drusilla, who he's been committing adultery, he, he goes in and he talks with Paul and they debate. And, talk, and, and G, obviously Paul shares Jesus with him. But at the same time, you know, Felix is like, this guy will just pay me a bribe to get me out of here, hopefully. And he never does. And he doesn't know what to do with him. So two years pass. Paul's in jail. Two years go past. Obviously, Felix goes, this man's innocent. But then Felix gets, he, he's resigned. And a new guy comes on the block called Festus. The same thing happens. Festus is like, this bloke's innocent. I don't know what to do with him. He's intrigued. And Festus, who's like wanting to keep the Jews happy, is like, Paul, why don't you just go back to Jerusalem and let's just have something happen there. Let's have a trial there in front of all the people. But Paul's like, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to Caesar. And so next thing what happens is we get to today's passage and King Agrippa turns up, the king. who, who was over, And he's, he's, got some, he's got some status. Festus tells him, like, what a, like how cool is the name? Sorry. You should, how cool is the name Festus? I, don't, I just, I like the name Festus. But Festus, you know, King, King Agrippa, do you know there's this guy who could go back to Jerusalem, but 
He's pleading to see, like, and he's innocent. I just don't know what to do with it. And King Agrippa's like, well, let's, let's have a listen to his argument. Let's have a listen. And so what happens? Get to Ch- Acts chapter 25. Go to verse 23. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice, they come with great pomp. I love that word as well. And entered the audience room with the high-ranking military. You can picture it. Here's a king. The drums are playing. The music is aroused. People are there, stand up. The king is coming and he comes in. He sits down. The people sit down and... Paul's not here at this moment, and they call Paul in. He comes in probably in chains, and this is where we are today in Acts chapter 26. Tell me what's going on, and, and Paul tells and shares about how he come to be where he is because of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the end of this chapter, again, it's made very clear in verses 30 and 31 of chapter 26 that Paul is innocent. Did you notice that? He's innocent. See, what, when, when you come to Acts 24, 25 and 26, we, we've got to remember that it's describing what's taken place. And it's going to show us a couple of things. Because here's a danger. When we read narrative, sometimes we read it as if it's prescribing us to do something. Right? Do you know what I mean? like, so in the book of Ephesians, it's a letter. You get halfway through the letter and it says, therefore, live like this. But when we come to reading narrative, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament or the book of Acts, we have to be very careful to go, is what's been, we've just read, is it descriptive or is it prescriptive, right? Is it just describing event or is it actually prescribing us to go out and do this kind of stuff? So we have to be very careful. But as we come to Acts 24, 25 and 26, it's describing to us, And I think its main point is that Luke wants to make it very, very clear that Paul is innocent. Secondly, he wants to make clear Paul's distinctive role in taking the gospel to the Gentiles, that as the gospel is preached, lives are changed. And fourthly, the main point, because in front of these three leaders, it says the gospel is unstoppable, but here's the main point, that the reign and resurrection of Jesus is cleared before the leaders. Over and over again, the resurrection of Jesus is talked about and over and over again, it's vindicated and it's cleared. So he wants us to know that it stands up. The the resurrection of Jesus stands up and it's been cleared. But what I want to do this morning is, that's the main point of this passage, but what I want to do just this morning is do something a little bit different. I I want us to ask the question is, what was Paul's posture in these moments? What was Paul's posture as he was on trial, under trial, under the heat? Well, I've got three things. The first one is he had a posture of, I think he had a posture of humility. See, as, in, in Acts chapter 26, Paul doesn't ever see himself as better than other people. He doesn't seem as better than the society around him. He doesn't seem more moralistic than those around him. He actually just says, I'm no better. Now, this is a very incredible moment. He's standing before King Agrippa. Now, he's been to the, in a way, he's sort of been to Felix and Festus. He's been to the local court of Toon Gabby. He says, he's been found innocent. Nah, I want to go to the state court. He goes to state court. He's been found innocent. Oh, nah, take me to the high court of Australia. And here he is. But what's so fascinating and incredible about this moment is that Paul finds himself in front of the most amb- one of the most ambitious and most corrupt families in the Roman Empire in the first century. He finds himself 
in front of the Herods. Do you remember Herod the Great? Like Herod, his great-grandfather, Agrippa, King Agrippa, I think it was his great-grandfather, or great-great-grandfather, he was the one who wanted the babies in Bethlehem killed. And so Herod's son then had John the Baptist beheaded. And then his son killed the Apostle James with the sword. And now who's standing in front of us? His son, Agrippa II, is standing in front of Paul, one of the most corrupt and morally most corrupt morally and ambitious families. And here Paul is standing in front of them and he's actually been given permission to speak in front of one of the Herods. But here's two reasons why I think Paul has a posture of humility. I see it in verses 4 to 18, firstly, and then secondly in verses 19 to 22. And the first reason I think is because Paul's saying it isn't the good moral life that's got him saved. Look at verse 4 and 5. Like he, what he's basically saying in verses 4 and 5 is, I am the Roger Federer of Pharisees. There's no one else like me. I've, I read the Bible. I go to church every Sunday. I do the right moral things. I say the right things. I've done so much. I found my strength. I found my identity in being a Pharisee. I am the Roger Federer of Pharisees. There's no one else like me. That's what verses 4 and 5 say. I conform to the strictest sect, living as a Pharisee. But then you get to verse 6. Pause here for a moment because you need to stop on verse 6 for a moment. Because, and now, so you see there's a contrast. I was once this, but now, because of my hope, not in what I do, my hope in what God has promised our ancestors, I'm on trial for that. I used to find my hope in my Pharisaicalness, but now I find my hope in Jesus. See, what's the hope of verse 8? What's the, sorry, verse 7? King Agrippa, it's because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. What's the hope? Verse 8, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? See, in, in Acts chapter 23, verse 6, it says this. It'll come up on the screen. It says, then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, he called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I'm a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees, and I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. See, what Paul's saying here, the hope is the resurrection of Jesus. I'm here because of Jesus' resurrection. I'm on trial because of that. Now, Paul's not on trial because he's done stupid things. You know, sometimes in, in, in Australian culture, we as Christians, we claim Christian persecution just because we're stupid. We, we post stupid things on social media. We're quick in our pride to say things about our culture. And, and, and we go, we're being persecuted from it. You read the book of Acts and the persecution is because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because of the claim that Jesus is the Messiah and that he's risen from the grave. I think as you trace through the book of Acts, you'll see that over and over and over again, that it's the, re the reaction is to the, per to the resurrection of Jesus. So he's basically saying, I used to have it all, King Agrippa. I was the best of the best until God intervened in my life. 
until God intervened on my life on that road to Damascus where I was in great darkness and now I'm in great light. I saw a great light. And there was in this that God has sent me, that the Lord has sent me to the Gentiles. Look at verse 17. I will rescue you from your... You know why I'm going around doing what I'm doing? It's because Jesus has sent me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. Like, wow. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God. Why? What's the purpose? So that they may receive forgiveness. Not achieve forgiveness, receive it. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So I think there's a sense in here, he's he's saying, it's not about me. But secondly, I think the reason why we see humility is because repentance is a part of the posture of humility. And that's I think I said that in verses 19 to 21. You know, I'll go to Damascus, I've I've got to go to the Gentiles, and what does he say? I preach that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. See, there's a sense of repentance here. He calls people to repent, obviously, because Paul's repentant. There's a stance of repentance. But see, a stance of repentance is actually, it's humility. But I don't know, I don't know about you, but what does the word repent mean to you? What, what, is, what language comes up into your mind when you think, when someone says you must repent? What do you think of? Now, growing up, like for my life, like I, I've sort of had this idea of repentance as a bad thing. Like it's because I've done bad things. Or maybe you've got this picture of, you know, like when I was at Forbes, there used to be a guy that used to turn up occasionally. He'd walk the streets with a black T-shirt saying, repent and believe. That's all he had. Maybe you're picturing someone in St. Martin's place with a billboard saying, you must repent. What what does repentance mean to you? You know what I think sometimes we think the word repentance means? Well, the word repentance means to turn from something to something else. Sometimes I think we think it's, the word repentance, when it says repentance in the Bible, it's to turn from doing bad things and to start doing good things. You know, like, you think, oh, you, you, oh no, you just need to repent and to turn from your sin and to start behaving correctly. Some of you, maybe you're here, thinking, oh, well, if only this younger generation would just repent stop doing the wrong thing, start acting right and repent and do the right thing. That would be good. That's not biblical repentance. That's not Christianity. That's religion. Paul actually tells us what repentance is. See, repentance isn't the determination to do better and be better. See, just to do better is looking to you. Paul explains what repentance is. It's turning away from yourself to God. It's not turning from doing bad things to you doing good things. It's turning from you in your sin and finding your strength and your identity in that and turning to going, it's about you, God. It's finding your strength in Him, not in what you do. Repentance is going from what you used to do And going, I used to be the Lord of my life, to going, Jesus is now the Lord of my life. And did you notice that he says that it's not doing good that shows that? So it's doing good is a fruit of that. It's not what repentance is. 
I preach that they should repent and turn to God. And how do you know that you've turned from that to Jesus and from going from your own strength to being in the strength of Jesus? Is that their deeds show it. See, biblical repentance is saying, I can't fix the problem. It's turning from you to turning to God. It's from turning from doing stuff in your own strength to now resting in Jesus' strength. It's turned from living as your Lord to him as Lord. Look at verse 22. I, I love it. But God has helped. Like, he's saying, Gripper, I'm here because it's in God's strength. God has helped me to this very day. I'm here today because of Jesus, he's saying. And as Paul gives this incredible defense before Agrippa, you see that he actually gives a defense of the gospel. He, as he shares what God has done in his life, he's actually sharing the gospel with those in this room, in that courtroom, right? In that room where everyone's listening around. As he's doing, he's sharing about going from darkness to light, about the power of Satan to the power of God, about receiving forgiveness and redemption. And have you ever realized that people are all listening to this? And it leaves you and me and us here today going, have I gone from darkness to light? Have I gone from the power of Satan to the power of God? Have I received forgiveness and redemption? It's sort of, in, in a way, Paul's, it's, it's, it's the, the obvious question people are asking in their mind. Which leads us, see, there's, I, think, I think here in Paul we see a, a posture of humility that he's not doing it in his strength. It's not about him. But secondly, I think there's a posture of persuasion in verses 24 to 25. How, what, what kind of posture do we see from Paul? I see, I see a posture of persuasion, verses 24 to 28. Now, have you ever tried persuading people from a place of pride? Now, yesterday afternoon, yesterday afternoon I was, I was in this moment where I was geeing myself up for a, a moment of a posture of persuasion. I was ready to persuade. I was ready to clear my name. But can I tell you that that moment was a posture, this posture of persuasion was coming from a posture of pride. I'll tell you why. Friday night, I took the house keys off one set of car keys and used it to lock the door and I put it in my pocket. I, I came to the office yesterday afternoon to prepare for today and and I've gone to my pocket, right? See, Al had left home, I've left home, I've locked the house, she's gone a different direction with the kids. And I've gone to my pockets and I've gone, oh, whoopsie, I've got the other set of house keys in my pocket and I've locked the house. Which meant that when Al got home, she wasn't going to be able to get in the house. And I knew in that moment, like, I've got, oh. But in my mind, I was working at how I could persuade her through arguments to justify why the key was in my pocket. Why? I wanted to self-preserve my reputation. In my pride and my ego, I did not want my ego and my self-preservation to be cut. And so in my mind, I'm working myself up to, to give this incredible oracle argument towards our when she rang up and said, hey, where's the house keys? And I was ready to give her this posture of persuasion that came from a place of pride. But when it comes from humility, did you notice Paul really wasn't out to defend himself? See, if, if his main objective was self-preservation, he would have chosen a safer path. 
His main, if his main, objective, his main objective wasn't to get himself off the hook. Have you noticed that? Over and over again, he's not worried about his self-preservation. He's not worried about his ego. His main objection wasn't to get off, but to preach Christ. As Christians living in Australia, it can be very easy to have a posture of persuasion that comes from a place of self-preservation and comfort. You know, like we live in a wealthy country, we've got lots of things, and as Christians, as, as we navigate the world that we live in, it's very easy for us to, to, to want to persuade arguments against culture that come from a place of self-preservation and comfort. Some of you are waiting to tell other people that they're wrong and I was right. You're waiting for the collapse of their position so that you can look and go, hey, I was, I was right. But that's, that's persuasion that comes from pride. And what happens when you're prideful? Resentful, you start to resent and you start to become bitter. And Paul's like, Agrippa, I was just like those Jews who brought these charges. Did you notice it in verse 9? I'm, anyway, I'm just like you, Agrippa. I'm no different to you. I was too was convinced that I ought to do what was possible to oppose Jesus. I did whatever I could to send people to prison. I did whatever I could to get people to blaspheme Christ. But it wasn't until Jesus interrupted me on that road to Damascus. He broke into my darkness that I'd be set free. I can't boast. I'm not here to self-preservate my life. I'm here to tell you about Jesus, that he was raised from the grave. See, a posture of persuasion is not a posture of pride. The moment you have a posture of pride that drives your persuasion, it will lead you to resentfulness and bitterness to those around you who are different and from other cultures. It will lead you to in this moment that as you look at our culture, you will resent what they're doing. If you're resenting, that's coming from a place of pride because that's built up, because you're thinking in that moment, I am better than you. See what I mean? Like when you get bitter, it's, it's in that moment you think, I have done more than you. Or, or, or in our cultural hubs, we are a multi-ethnic church, which is incredible. But then we can, in our moment of our culture, go, oh, you're not as good as us because you don't do that. The way you do your family, it's different to the way we do family life, or the way that you do me. Or the, you know, like it's, and, and that leads us to resent Whereas when we look at it from a, a humble position of the gospel of grace, it changes. I think he's got a posture of persuasion that comes from humility. I want to ask this question that, you know, maybe, maybe you're someone who posts on social media. Maybe you put videos, maybe you put articles, maybe you share things in text messages or whatever it might be with people about culture. I want to ask this question though. Here's a question to ask yourself and I ask myself. Does your post... Does the words you just used, does the slogan or the meme that you've just shared, does it actually come from a place of humility or from a place of pride? Does it come from a place of resentment and annoyance or from a place of kindness and compassion? Does it come from a place of self-preservation or from a place of mercy? Does it come from a place where you want the comforts and the wealth and all these things to stay? Or does it come from a place of grace and compassion? 
I think here Paul's, he's not worried what other people think. But it comes in humility. And, and you get this moment where he, he I, I reckon he eyeballs King Agrippa. You know, Paul seems to handle himself wisely. Have you noticed it always seems to be with respect and at the right time? Like look at verse 25. You know, Festus has just said, you're out of your mind. And Paul says, oh, I'm, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. Even the way he talks to Festus, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true. It's, it's reasonable. It's logical. The king's familiar with these things. And I can speak freely to him. And I'm convinced that none of it has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. See, I think Paul knows when to speak and when to be quiet. He knows when to open and when not to open his mouth. He knows when he should and when he shouldn't. He doesn't come in smashing and clashing and loudly and pushing his rights and his First Amendment rights or his constitutional freedom of speech. But he just, he says to King Agrippa, you've been around enough, King. You've heard the stories. You know, like, you've seen enough, haven't you? You've seen that this story about this guy from Nazareth who was crucified and who was raised. You know that to be true. You've heard that, King Agrippa. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? Now, what a bold statement. And then what comes next is, I know you do. I know you know this. There's a sense in which he wants to persuade. At the centre, it all points to Jesus. He's got this posture of humility, this posture of persuasion. But actually, look, look at, uh, it's going to come up on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 3. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But Peter says, do it with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience as those who speak mal- maliciously against you, that your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Pres- we, we conduct ourselves in a way that's respectful, with gentleness, being ready to give an answer when we need to give an answer. Now, King Agrippa, he can sort of tell what Paul's up to. You're not here to get yourself off the hook. You're hoping that I'll become a follower of Jesus, aren't you? But you want me to become a disciple? Look at verse 28. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? See, Paul was placed in front of this king at this moment, in this time, by the sovereignty of God and his providence. He said, he intervened on the road of I'm going to place you here in front of this king. You're going to have a room full of people. And I don't know about you, but do you realise that you've been placed in a suburb in Western Sydney, in a street, with a house, with a job, with a club that you go to, where you have opportunities in front of the world to speak of the riches and the, the incredibleness of Jesus, to give an account that through your life they see that there's something different. They can see that your repentance isn't about behavior, but they can see that, that you recognize that you can't do it in your own strength, but you're doing it in the strength of God. That they wonder why through your great suffering, have, why do you have such hope? That they ask you, why do you have this kind of hope? 
that they see that your life is actually a bit of a mess, that you're not trying to cover up with a moral facade. They just see the grace of Jesus at work in your life. And I want to ask you, well, why, why do you have that? It's so comforting, isn't it? Because it means that you don't actually have to have your life together. False repentance does. But biblical repentance goes from the strength of being in you to being in the strength of God. It means that you're not going to have all the words. It means you'll probably get sweaty, you'll get nervous, and you'll say the wrong thing. And that's okay. They'll see that maybe that your marriage is a mess. They may see that, that the work's not going so well. They may see that the relationships are broken and, 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 and they just get that and they want to get, but, but why do you have this sense of hope? There's a posture, I think, here of persuasion. But here, the second, thirdly, there's a posture of integrity. There's a sense of integrity in the way that Paul handles himself the way he conducts himself that comes from a life deeply embedded in the gospel truth. Right, Agrippa, he's just said to him, you think you can persuade me to be a Christian? And it got me thinking this week, if someone asked me that question, you know, this way I'm trying, you know, you talk to your neighbour and they say, are you, James, are you trying to convince me to become a Christian? Like, I'd probably lose eye contact for a moment. I think, oh, well, what am I going to say now? You know, like that, I want to make sure I've had the right, oh, yeah, I want to share Jesus with you, but it's up to you what you do with that. I don't know, would you fumble? Would you sort of stumble? I'd, I'd be like trying to get around that going, oh, they've worked it out that I'm trying to see you come to Christ. Ooh. And verse 29, I sure am. I don't care whether it's one year or whether it's 40 years or 50 years down the track, I hope that every single person in this room will follow Jesus. He's just, like, he just, he just, I'm here for that. You really do care about that, don't you, Paul? Short and long. See, in a sense, Paul doesn't really demand his rights. He doesn't blame everything on the government for his misery. Even though Paul is definitely innocent, he's more worried about the people in that crowd finding Jesus. He has a posture of integrity. Now, you might be here today and you're not a Christian. You know, maybe you come with a family friend, maybe you've come with a, a, a close friend, maybe your mum, your dad or your sister, or, or maybe just a friend's brought you today and maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, I wonder if my friends brought me here because they want me to become a Christian. They do. Yes, they do. But be reassured, your friends have been praying for you. They've been praying for you that you will come to know Jesus. Whether it's a family member or whether it's a friend who's brought you here today, they are praying deeply that you will come to know Jesus. They want you to know this Jesus. And this is what, not what your friends are asking you to do. They're not asking you to become a religious, moralistic person who, who has to go and present that the whole of your world is upright and correct. No, the good news of Jesus is that through his life, that Christ lived the life you could not live, that he died the death that you should have died, that he received the wrath that you should have received, and that he was raised from the grave so that you could be raised from the grave. That, that no longer do you need to find the strength 
in yourself by doing the right thing, but you find your strength in Him, the one who always does the right thing. So you don't have to go and try and achieve forgiveness for yourself. It's something that you receive because Christ has paid the price. That is for all of us here today to turn from that and to turn to Jesus. There's this passion, this longing, I think, of Paul. He just wants to see people meet Jesus. Now, in reality, most of us aren't going to find ourselves before the King of England. We're not going to probably find ourselves before the Prime Minister of Australia, let alone the Mayor of Sydney, let alone the Mayor of Toongabbie. We're probably not going to be that, right? There's a reality about that. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, it says, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. See, God is making his appeal to this world through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I suppose I want to leave the question with this. What does your posture look like in this world? See, Paul, I think he had a posture of humility and persuasion and that came from integrity, that came from the beauty and the wonder of Jesus. You know, do you ever wonder where Paul got his courage and his strength? I think his strength and his courage isn't found in his own inability or his own resolve. His courage isn't coming from how he conducts himself. His strength isn't found in allowing other people to validate and thank him for all he does. He, he's, he doesn't find his strength in looking to others to applaud him and accept him. So I think, I think in a sense what we see here is that Paul is not worried what the king thinks of him in his courtroom. He's not worried about that. See, Paul, he can face any courtroom that this world throws at him. Because Jesus face the ultimate courtroom for him. So he knows because the Spirit's in it, the, the, the Spirit points him to Jesus. So he knows that he has the love of the one true king whose affections are upon him who will one day take him home. So let's look to the one who has his affections upon us as we live in this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we've been reminded that the gospel stands up in the courtroom. that your plan was for the gospel to go to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and eventually it's, it's come to us here in Australia. And so, Father, we want to just thank you for those who have shared that good news with us. But, Father, we pray that as we engage our world, that as we live our, this week, we will think about the posture in which we engage our world. Father, keep us humble. Help us to be persuasive. But may we live with integrity as we are ambassadors of Christ in this world whom through us you are making your plead, be reconciled to God. And we pray this for your kingdom. Amen.